In short, this book is about fixing problems. The good news is that we can fix our ecological problems by indulging rather than sacrificing. It has been very difficult to address environmental issues by asking people to give up something, their SUV, clothes dryer, sirloin steak, or the idea of having a third, fourth, or fifth child in order to gain the long-term benefits from good health, a modern climate, moderate climate, clean air and water, and life-sustaining ecosystems. These are certainly real benefits. They are essential, in fact, to a modest quality of life. But even if we behave well today, we won't realize these benefits until sometime down the road, around life's next corner in the nebulous uncertainty we call the future. And therein lies the problem. Humans are not genetically programmed to care about the future. So I will not be asking for sacrifices that will build a better world later on. I will suggest actions that heal our damaged landscapes right now. Actions that create immediate short-term gains for humans. That such actions will also deliver long-term ecological benefits is just the icing on the cake. As important as that icing is. Welcome back to Zoo Notable. Continuing the theme of conservation ideas to celebrate Earth Month, I found a great book titled Nature's Best Hope by Douglas Tallamy. Now, this book is honestly a great example of why I love thrift store shopping. I found this at a thrift store and figured it could be an enlightening book, and boy was it ever. Nature's Best Hope is a mix between Richard Louv's Last Child in the Woods and William Stoltenberg's where the wild things were. These are both Zoo Notables from 2022, and the links are in the description. I found a great combination of repeated wisdom, which is always a great reminder for important big ideas, and even some new discoveries. As my opening quote suggests, this book isn't doom and gloom like so many other conservation books. It doesn't tell us to change everything about our lives or suffer the extreme consequences. These are simple solutions that can benefit us, our community, and our plant and animal friends. And I hope you enjoy this book as much as I did. So if you're ready, let's close Earth Month with a message of hope from Douglas Tallamy's Nature's Best Hope. And we'll dig right on in with big idea number one, stop keeping up with the Joneses. Quote, because our gardens are usually in full public view, they are a form of communication. They tell our neighbors whether or not we share their values, and with few exceptions, we work hard to let them know that we do. We conform to the norms of our neighborhood in almost all aspects of our daily lives so that we can feel and are accepted by our local society. We choose our wardrobes, our cars, our diets, our vacations, and even the plants in our yards with one largely subconscious goal in mind, to send the clear message that we are like those around us and therefore should be accepted as a member of their tribe. Now we are a social species, and because as a species we rely on others, it feels important to fit in, be accepted, and be liked by others in our community. This is just a prehistoric need. And back in the day of hunters and gatherers, and even at the dawn of the agricultural revolution, to be outcasted by society was considered a death sentence. We couldn't survive without each other. 
However, in today's society, this ideal is exploited, particularly by the advertisement and marketing companies. And folks, it's not just the food industry, although they are quite nefarious in their tactics, but it's also the fashion industry, cars, entertainment, the quote-unquote health and beauty industry, and again, even our influences of our personal and private homes and gardens. And Douglas Tallamy tells a story of a woman who, wanting to attract native wildlife in her yard, planted a native meadow with native flora, xeriscape in the grass, which was basically eliminating the lawn, and letting a meadow take shape. She was ostracized by her, her neighbors and even fined by her HOA. Eventually, the woman left her community to find a place far off so she could reconnect with nature without the hassle of her neighbors. And I really feel for the woman because we shouldn't be ridiculed or quote unquote canceled because we are doing something good for the environment. But in today's world, it is accepted to have a green lawn, decorative and ornamental plants that aren't native to the area and get rid of all the weeds, which is another idea we're going to discuss in just a moment, but are nothing more than native plants that just grow very well in our region. And this reminds me of a couple other books I've read, such as Healthy Deviant by Pilar Gerasimo. Now, in her book Without breaking tie, about breaking ties with societal norms to get back onto your personal path to health and wellness and not the industry's ideas of wellness, she quotes philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti, who once said, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And that here is the key. So do you have a dream of letting nature run wild in your backyard or helping make a bigger difference by driving less or driving an energy efficient car, even if it's less glamorous than the other less efficient vehicles? Perhaps you have made, you've been made fun of for always having canvas bags or reusable containers or your handy dandy utensils. Don't worry, you aren't weird or even crazy. You're just breaking away from the quote-unquote profoundly sick society and making your way back to a healthier, happier you and a healthier, happier planet. Big idea number two is words have power. Quote, it bugs me when people call insects bugs, not just because the term is taxonomically incorrect. Only suborder heteroptera insects are true bugs. And not because it diminishes the diversity and importance of insects. It bugs me because those who derogatorily lump all creatures with six legs into one group do so because they don't know one insect from another. And if they don't know one insect from another, they won't care about any of them. We humans distinguish objects and beings from one another by naming them. Learning names is usually step one towards becoming familiar with something or someone, and familiarity is necessary before we can develop empathy, before we can care whether it lives or dies, flourishes, or goes extinct. Are you getting bugged by terminology? I agree with Douglas Ptolemy. I'm also fascinated by the etymology of words, the meaning behind the words, and how they matter. Uh, Ellen Langer, a professor at Harvard, conducted research that really struck me, and this section on insects reminds me of it. So get this. When she randomly assigned people into two groups and had them do crossword puzzles, 
One group was doing normal cross crossword puzzles. The other group did a crossword puzzle featuring words associated with old age. Then they timed how long it took each group to go from the lab to the elevator. The group that was primed with the old age words walked significantly slower to the elevator than those who were not primed. Now, our brains interpret words and their meanings to prime us for connection or distancing ourselves. When we classify insects such as bees, moths, aphids, ants, and dragonflies as bugs, we don't care as much about them as when we're introduced to them as maybe perhaps cool animals. One of my favorite activities to do at my job as a naturalist is what we call a pond study. So we gather a sample of pond water from the property and we invite kids and adults to explore and find amazing aquatic life. There are sometimes beetles, tadpoles, and then even a fascinating insect called a caddisfly. And caddisflies build a home around them made of grass, moss, sticks, and mud. And they carry it around as they traverse their watery environment. Now, what I, lo- what I love about this is not just discovering the cool animals myself, but getting others excited about all wildlife and not just that charismatic megafauna. But it takes some marketing and shifting our perceptions of animal life and plant life as well. For example, what do you think of when you hear the word weed? Well, as Douglas Ptolemy explains, a weed is defined as a plant out of place. The problem with that definition, though, is that it is entirely subjective. To an ecologist, any plant that has no evolutionary history in a given space is a plant out of place, and that includes the beautiful ornamentals we have introduced from elsewhere. But to most gardeners, any plant that tries to grow within a design that it did not specify is a plant out of place, and that includes all of the native plants that have grown on that site for thousands of years. Our subjective perception of where plants belong is how so many of our native plants came to be called weeds. In many cases, the word weed becomes part of the native plant's common name. Horseweed, New York ironweed, milkweed, ragweed, pigweed, bindweed, smartweed, pokeweed, butterflyweed, hawkweed, and fireweed are just some examples. The situation under which such plants came to be considered weeds is understandable, but today their common names have stacked an emotional deck against them. The bad rep that has been bestowed upon many native plants is more than an undeserved shame. It becomes an ecological disaster. These so-called weedy native plants support much of the animal diversity in North America and our war against them in residential and commercial landscapes alongside roadsides, and on the edges of croplands have been a primary cause of the decline of butterflies such as monarchs, thousands of species of native bees, and countless other insects that no one is monitoring. There is little doubt that without our native weeds, we would face ecosystem collapse. A number of native weeds spend their days stabilizing wetlands, cleaning our waterways, limiting erosion, and providing nurseries for freshwater fish. The point is, as we rid our landscapes and our agriculture borders of the native plants we so carelessly call weeds, we cripple our local ecosystems. So folks, let's learn how to use our words carefully and change our mindset around some of the words that have had historically a negative connotation, but that in reality, we wouldn't be able to live without.
And that brings us to big idea number three, the magic of plants and insects or keystone fairies. Quote, imagine a world where a good fairy has the power to bestow life in exchange for the ability to live peacefully among its inhabitants. This is more than a fair exchange, for in fairyland, everyone depends on the fairy. There are no political debates about whether people can afford to protect the fairy's well-being. Indeed, no one could exist without her. She does not demand it, yet many worship the fairy and pray that she will never withhold her gift of life. Sermons are written about her benevolence. Cities are built in her name. Global holidays are held in her honor. And those who threaten her are punished convincingly. The fairy must be sustained at all costs, for without her, everyone is doomed. Now, let's turn fairyland into reality. Planet Earth is identical to fairyland with one difference. Life as we know it is not sustained by a miraculous fairy, but by insects. E.O. Wilson called insects the little things that run the world because many of the essential ecological roles they play every day. Insects pollinate 87.5% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. And plants turn energy from the sun into food that we and unimaginable diversity of birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and freshwater fishes need to exist. Insects are also the primary means by which the food created by plants is delivered to animals. Most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. Far more often, they eat insects that have converted plant sugars and carbohydrates into the vital proteins and fats that fuel complex food webs. And just as no one could exist without the fairy in fairyland, humans would last only a few months if insects were to disappear from Earth. It is remarkable then that our, culture, our cultural relationship with insects is not one of awe and appreciation, but one of disgust and animosity. We have created a culture in which insects and their arthropod relatives are maligned. In the name of protecting crops and fighting a few disease vectors, we have declared war on all insects and we kill them whenever we can. In several previous Sioux Notables, I have explained the concept of a keystone species. These are animals that are so vital to the health of an ecosystem that if they were to be removed, the ecosystem would collapse. Now, insects are a keystone species for the entire world. Insects are pollinators. They convert plants into energy and they feed other animals. Life would cease to exist as we know it without insects. But even animals that we can't always see the immediate purpose are important and can be keystone species, not just insects. And one thing I contemplated as I read Nature's Best Hope was the actual purpose of birds. Now, plants are vital. I mean, we, they produce oxygen, they provide food, and they're homes for animals. And as previously stated, insects make the world go round. But birds, they eat plants and insects, right? Well, yeah, they do that, but they are important in their own right. Without birds, too many caterpillars would devour and demolish healthy plant ecosystems, just like otters help keep sea urchins in check. But even more than that, Douglas Talmy writes in his frequently asked questions section, why should I care if birds are disappearing? I don't even like birds. I, I do like birds, by the way. You should care because birds are excellent ecological indicators, canaries in the coal mine, if you will. 
they would be they would not be disappearing if ecosystems that support them were functioning properly. And you should care whether ecosystems that support birds are healthy because those same ecosystems support you. These species in an ecosystem are the engines that run the ecosystem. Every time we lose a species, either literally or functionally, whether it's a bird, a bee, a lizard, a plant, or a nematode, too small to see, the ecosystem functions below its capacity and our life support systems are weakened. So on this final day of Earth Month, let's thank all the critters and all living things that support our lives and make our days brighter. The birds, the bees, the plants, the trees, all of it. And be thankful for the magical land we live in, our own personal fairyland, complete with magical fairies. Big idea number four is the insane benefits of plants. Quote, to the surprise of the public and even to researchers, studies have shown that a brief exposure to the natural world produces measurable medical and social benefits for humans. Plant a tree outside a classroom window and test scores improve. Plant a tree outside a hospital room window and the patients in the facility heal faster. Studies show that apartment buildings with treed courtyards house families that undergo fewer divorces, higher graduation rates, and less juvenile delinquency than nearby apartment complexes with no trees. Spending just 15 minutes in a peaceful, natural setting reduces our blood pressure, as well as the levels of cortisol, the stress hormone in our blood. What, pray tell, is going on? Pray tell, what is going on? Now, I will admit some of these statistics can actually be explained and shown it doesn't have to do with plants per se, but how we treat each other and, and the planet. Now, for example, divorce rates and graduation rates in apartment complexes without trees may be more related to the fact that marginalized communities often don't have as many trees. Now, I don't know if planting trees would magically turn this statistic around, as it is more related to redlining, the concept of discriminating against certain people for financial purposes, such as home loans, insurance, and credit. I am curious, though, if trees could help with other aspects in those red lines and gentrified neighborhoods, could it affect health and well-being like they appear to do at hospitals? Could they promote more studious children like at schools? Could they reduce stress and help those who have trees nearby cope with anxiety in healthier ways? That idea is pure magic, but it does take both sides to make that difference. We can make the argument that communities need more natural spaces and trees and native flora. And we also can work hard to remove stigmas and barriers for marginalized communities to flourish in this world with or without those trees. But again, the trees would certainly help. And then finally, our big idea number five, everyone can make a difference. We've done it before. Quote, in the early 1980s, Margie Terpstra found a beautiful bird in her yard, beautiful but dead. It was a Kentucky warbler killed by a window strike. She knew very little about birds, but the tiny body in her hand triggered a flood of questions and a keen desire to find the answers. What could it be? Where did it come from? How many others are like it out there? Her husband, Dan, encouraged her interest in birds with a new pair of binoculars and a birding class at the St. Louis Zoo. 
Soon, Margie was going on bird walks and keeping a running list of the bird species she had seen in her suburban St. Louis yard. Margie had learned that birds need food, shelter, and water during migration and while breeding. The native plants in her yard were providing food and cover, but where would the birds find a convenient sheltered source of clean water? Margie discovered that clean, shallow water combined with splashing sounds are irresistible to most birds year-round, but particularly during migration when neotropical migrants are tired, thirsty, and in need of a bath. The Terpstras built a bubbler with a thin view of their back porch and immediately discovered what a birder's paradise they had created. Did the Terpstras need special training to help so many birds and have so much fun? Did they need a degree in conservation biology or anthology or ecology to succeed? Did they need to forsake their normal routines of work and socialization and move to a wilderness research station with the steel spring bunk beds? Of course not. Margie spent 21 years as a dental hygienist and Dan as a mechanical engineer. What they did have was the desire to turn their tiny corner of the world into a haven for the life around them which has become an enormously rewarding experience for them and a mechanism to connect with like-minded people by shifting their parental instincts from their own kids toward an ecosystem stewardship. The Terpstras are meeting the needs of migrants that must fly thousands of miles through human dominated landscapes twice a year. This makes rest stops such as Terpstras yard essential for migrants, especially in large city. And each stop, no matter its size, has ecological value. Marjorie and Dan have shown us all how effective one couple can be in their spare time. That was a long story, but again, it reminded me. In February, I read Wangari Matai's book, Unbowed, and was inspired by her stance that anyone and everyone can make a difference. You don't need a foresting degree to plant trees, and you don't need an ornithology degree to appreciate birds and do things in your own backyard to help them. As Douglas Ptolemy points out further, we have taken two primary missteps in these early years of biological conservation. The first and most serious has been to assume that people and biodiversity cannot coexist. The second misstep has been to leave conservation to the conservationists, that tiny community of trained ecologists who have specialized in sciences of conservation, restoration, reclamation, and ecological sustainability. Every person on earth depends entirely on the quality of the earth's ecosystems for his or her continued existence. Therefore, each of us, not just a few scientists, carries an inherent responsibility for good earth stewardship. So if we want to see a change, we must take action towards change. And I know change is scary, especially when we seem to be beating our drum to a completely different song than others. But you know what? While change is scary, it is also a part of our culture. We've changed our perception of what is socially acceptable to promote conservation efforts before. Regardless of whether our motivation is culturally, ecologically, or evolutionary influenced, it is possible to change such deeply entrenched preferences. We have already done, made many cultural changes to reflect changing times before. We've changed cigarette smoking from a high-status social activity to an embarrassing and nasty habit banished to parking lots. 
Activism by numerous celebrities and animal rights groups helped change our culture view of seal and other exotic fur coats from expensive and sought off luxury items to banned products banned for sale in the United States and elsewhere. Now, such cultural changes don't occur overnight, but they clearly illustrate the power of peer pressure, the collective will of tribe, especially when backed by compelling logic. And when logic-based peer pressure is combined with financial incentives, it's irresistible. So again, you don't need a degree, you don't need to be in high authority, and you don't need hundreds of acres to make a difference. It can be your backyard or your back patio or a balcony or a porch. Plant native species to promote local pollinators. Provide resources for native wildlife. Your pet's fur sheddings are excellent nesting materials for birds, for example. Or you can put out a shallow pan with rocks and water to be enough for thirsty songbirds and tired bumblebees. Just do what you can. Make a statement and let your voice be heard over the roar of a profoundly sick society and see how much your health, your happiness... And your life improves when we create nature's best hope in our own backyards. That's all I've got for this great book, Nature's Best Hope by Douglas Ptolemy. You can check it out or grab a copy for yourself and start making your corner of the world a little better starting today. And we're going to close up with some quotes from Nature's Best Hope. Wendell Berry says, There is, in fact, no distinction between the fate of the land and the fate of the people. When one is abused, the other suffers. Douglas Ptolemy tells us, Humans are, by nature, an adventuristic species. We crave new experiences, new horizons, and uncharted territories. He also says, close interactions with the wild animals in your yard can bring you the same emotional benefits that are gained from living with cats and dogs. E.O. Wilson tells us that if all mankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. If insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. Albert Einstein tells us we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. And back to Douglas Ptolemy who tells us the fact that we have allowed certain special interest groups to politicize the health of our environment has always baffled me. There is no one on the planet who doesn't require a healthy environment that includes complex ecosystems that create our life support systems. Yet we tolerate and even vote for people who foul our nests and our only nests for short-term profit. Finally, he tells us nature is fascinating, a totally unexplored new world that challenges the imagination at every step.